Hey, and welcome to the Uncomfortable is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where we make it easier for you to get out of your comfort zone so you can go and find the magic in your life. Today, I'm chatting with Eric Hunley, who, among other things, is the host of the Unstructured podcast. The Unstructured podcast is is great. It's Basically, it's Eric sitting down with a whole raft of interesting people and having unstructured conversations with them like you, you'd have at a bar with your mates and just going deep on, on a real raft of different topics, which is, is fascinating to me. But today on this show, we talk through Eric's background, we talk through him being sick as a child and what that, what skills that led to, what uncomfortable moments were there and how that affected some of his relationships. We talk through his time in the US Army and the uncomfortable times in that, but also the, the skills and the challenges that he, he learned and overcame. We have a talk through his journey back into running as an adult and going from someone that weighed 283 pounds to someone who is running ultra marathons. And we we chat through the unstructured podcast as well and how that came about for Eric and the, and the premise behind it. Now, before we kick things off, I just want to let people know, especially those people in Wellington, that I'm going to be running another workshop on the 26th of January. Did one in October. If you... If you guys have been listening for a while, you'll you'll know about that. For those that are new, though, this is this workshop. It's aimed at identifying strategically a challenge for people to take on to push them outside of their comfort zone. And this might be a challenge that you have been thinking about for a little while now, but you just haven't got outside of your comfort zone and started. Or it might be that you just feel that you're stuck at the moment um, and you're just in a rut and you need something to get you going. So this workshop is great for both of those types of people, whether you know what you want to do or whether you don't. It's going to push you out of your comfort zone. It's going to create a plan and a strategy to take on your challenge without overwhelming yourself so you can grab tickets to that at surmountcourse.com that's surmountcourse.com but with that out of the way thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with eric and i today eric hunley welcome to the uncomfortable is okay podcast how are you doing yesterday (laughs) i'm doing fabulous because it's the end of my day the start of yours but the start of my weekend so always a happier moment oh very nice very nice and for people that missed that one eric hosts a podcast uh called unstructured and i was on it well actually it came out last week and i'm actually in tomorrow compared to to where eric is so mate do you want to give us a little bit of background about you where are you at the moment where in the world I'm in the Hampton Roads, Virginia area. People who have traveled more would recognize it as Virginia Beach or Norfolk, Virginia, East Coast, the United States. Very cool. And is that where you were born? Is that where you grew up? No, no. I was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona, the other side of the country. Desert child. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Very nice. And mate, I like to dig deep right at the start. Do you have any kind of formative moments when you were a little Eric that has started you on this path that you're on today? Yeah, I'd say um, I was sick as a kid and being really, really sick, I would be wearing a jacket in the middle of the summer in Arizona heat. So I don't know how to break it down to Celsius, but 110 degrees is not uncommon there. So probably 42 Celsius or something. Yeah, I don't know. Early 40s, I think. It's quite warm. 
but I was sick, really thin, and I wasn't really able to play with the other kids, things like that. So I think that that may have in itself started me on the journey, so to speak. I would spend my time with either with the girls or on my own watching everybody else play, but not really getting to participate very much. Do you remember how that made you feel at the time? Pretty isolated, obviously. Not very masculine, I guess, as a boy or or whatever, because I just wasn't able to do things. And I had a father who was um, extremely, extremely masculine, very strong person. Uh, I watched him prop up a dump truck with a railroad tie. He was like super strong. So it's kind of like this contrary um, existence. I had a growth spurt later, but growing up, I, I had this image and he had expectations. So ironically, my sister was the one who rode the horses and did the barrel racing and did all the quote, boy things with him, and I was a reader. Mm, okay. When you were sick when you were younger, Eric, like, I'm assuming that you, you got through that phase as well. Sure. When did that happen? Like, when did you kind of start to grow and your health improve? It's one of those things where it doesn't happen overnight. Things sort of happen over time. So mm. the last incident I had with my, essentially I had asthmatic symptoms based off of allergies, and when I was 12 is the last incident I, I really had. It might have been a year or two before that. Then I started to just kind of pull out of it, not really have as much of a problem, and adjusted over time and sort of found my way back into society, so to speak, or you know whatever the cloister society is. Have you ever seen The Breakfast Club? Yes. Yeah, I have. Okay. That's a perfect example of my high school. Only difference was it was on a campus type of environment because it was Tucson, but we had all the cliques because being a nerd wasn't cool back then. Being a nerd and a geek is cool now. People are striving to do it. Back then, you had the jock, you had the nerd, you had the stoner, you had other people. I kind of pivoted from stoner to nerd somewhere in there. I didn't really fit in with any particular group, but I started to get along with multiple groups, accepted by them, but not really part of them. And do you remember how you went about becoming accepted by them? I mean, I when I was growing up, I moved around. We moved around quite a lot, so it was it was always kind of trying to fit into into new schools as well. And, sure. Um. So I, I I kind of resonate with with what you're saying there, and it it's challenging. And I almost found that you kind of put on a little bit of a mask yourself and sure. try and portray a version of yourself that maybe isn't quite as accurate. Yeah, it's a really tricky time too because you don't even know who the hell you are. Yeah, exactly. We're talking, it's, it's puberty. So, I mean, let alone trying to fit in with everybody. Now you really want to fit in with women because they're just suddenly, oh my God, where did they come from? And then you don't really fit in with anybody else. So it's, it, there's so many layers involved and I guess kind of just got tired of trying and ironically that sort of helped me it's like I could fit in a little better if I just didn't really try too hard to fit in it's that indifference and aloofness that people find mysterious yeah except it really wasn't they just interpreted it that way you know it, <laughs> yeah. it was really exhaustion it's like <laughs> I give up man I don't know and it's uh, just like I just I quit I, I stopped trying. and then they're like oh wow I guess he's all right okay Good. Maybe I should have employed that tactic, actually. <laughs> and Eric, did you get more into into physical activity and, and sport at that time? I tried to do football because my dad was into it. 
and didn't have a great time with it. I had a, there were two coaches, one coach, and it's sad that the, the people who are traumatic to you, you actually remember their name and you forget everybody else's name, but they had me run around the track. And with my uh, background, obviously I didn't fare very well. And on the end of the lap, I just fell face first. I mean, just fell out and he's screaming at me, get up, you pussy, you sorry piece. You know, I mean, just full on into me. And that was my introduction to the uh, sport of American football, you know, with the helmets mm, and the pads yeah. and, and that good stuff. But it actually turned out in a good way because one practice they put me in because they were desperate. The uh, other coach, the defense coach was like, Hey, just go ahead, come play over here. Cause he you know, saw that I was not well accepted by the offensive coach. So then he put me in defensive tackle and I kind of found a good spot there. So I, I was small still, starting to get a growth spurt, but I just figured out a way to just keep cutting through and getting to the quarterback every time. And so six plays in a row, I sacked the quarterback. Coach Howard was going completely ballistic that this pussy was getting through the line and taking out the quarterback. And it was the most satisfying experience I had ever had in my life probably prior to that point. Anyway, I did that, um, played on the team for uh part of the se- you know for the season and then I was like okay I'm done dad I did it then not really much else until I went in the army later did that alter your relationship with your dad that year of football no not really it was a weird thing right? my dad and I had a really awkward relationship and I I was very afraid of him and I had a lot of rage toward him and what turns out is we reestablished our relationship as adults it's, it's always a very fortunate thing if you can get to know your, your parents as an adult, unlike as you did as a kid, because a lot of things become clearer. So a lot of rage I had toward my dad actually was things that were coming from my mom. They both passed. But um, she, she was kind of honestly manipulative. And I learned to be manipulative. You know, I very much got it from her. And a lot of it was a defense because my dad was very old fashioned. I mean, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, that kind of thing. And I was very, very, very afraid of him. So I learned how to manipulate situations to where I wouldn't get hit or I could kind of trick my way through different stuff. The culmination of that was I got busted felony possession as a teenager with uh, marijuana or cannabis, which is ironic because it's starting to become legal in different places. <laughs> yeah. But it was not legal in, uh, was it 87 or whatever? And I had some on me. So I got busted with it. And then I got the police to drop me off at my sister's place because she had already moved out and all that. And because he would have killed me. I mean, genuinely, I, I was scared for my life. So I then got it. And he's like, you need to come home. I'm like, no, you'll kill me. No, I won't. Oh, okay then. And so then I came back. But the one quality he had is he was the most honest person I've ever known. So if he ever gave his word on something, that absolutely was there. So he said he wouldn't lay a hand on me, and he he didn't. His head was about to explode, but he never touched me. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, entertaining, amusing, but also very insightful. Eric, I want to I wanna talk to you a little bit about the Army, actually. And, I mean, when did you join the Army? I joined the Army in 92. Yeah. So it's it's been a minute. Yeah, how old were you then? <laughs> Uh, 22. I, I had my birthday in basic training. Mm. I mean, I think for for the listeners in New Zealand as well, the, the U.S. Army, I mean, in terms of kind of a career opportunity, moving, going into the Army is probably 
more of a, a popular opportunity in the States than it would be in a lot of other countries? I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure because I don't know the politics or dynamics mm. of many other countries. I mean, the army is just a place people can go. I got in it quite frankly, because I was broke and I could go in there. They pay for some food. I was with a, a female at the time that would cover my housing and they told me I could write for the paper. Turned out that was a lie, but anyway, that's one thing that is very common at the U.S. Army is the uh, old joke is the recruiter will, you know, lied to me. Yeah. Well, that's the Army because the Army is volunteer, so they have to get us in one way or another. Mm, mm. Okay. So you're fed, you're housed, you're writing, but it's not actually being published anywhere. There's a long story with that, but I did write while I was there, but it didn't become my job. They just took advantage of it. And then, you know, continued the lie. It was a great life experience. Essentially, I went into the Army, got the worst job in the worst duty station that it's possible to get in the Army. So I was a cook, and they're the bottom of the barrel. They are where they send people if they wash up in their job that they apply for. So, like, let's say you go in the Army and you're going to be a mechanic and you fail. They'll reclass you as a cook. They're the dummies. And I was in the worst duty station. Now, I was used to Tucson heat, which was 110 degrees, but I was actually at Fort Irwin, California, which is near Death Valley, and that's 125 to 130 degrees by noon. So I don't even know what that is in Celsius, but I will go further and say that I also cooked out in the desert, and I worked on a trailer with six gasoline stoves. So the uh, temperature inside of the trailer was approximately 160 degrees, and we had to do five-minute shifts. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. How much water are you drinking during those days? Probably quart and a half to two quarts an hour and never going to the bathroom. Yeah. You guys really need to go metric, eh? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be convenient, eh? Yeah, yeah. I have to call my granddad, actually, and ask him how much a quart is. Oh, okay. Uh, a quart is just shy of a liter. Okay, sweet. All right. Okay, that's, that is a, uh, that's a significant amount of water. So if people wash up as cooks, if they fail at whatever else they're doing... How does that affect the quality of the food that gets served up to people? Ironically, depending on where you are, but we have actual chefs in the army. So, and the uh, facility I was working in, part of the writing was to get them to qualify, but they got voted for um, an award, which made them the best facility in the army. I mean, we had a guy there who uh, did ice sculptures. So you know, it was a very, very real, talented bunch. I hated it personally. And I hated being used. And most of all, I hated the fact that when I, I was tricked to take the job because I said, oh, well, I can write. I'll take the, the job with the bonus, the money. And then that actually trapped me. But another little problem happened. When you go into the Army, you have to take a test. Um, it's called an ASVAB. And it's broken down to different scores. And there's a score called a GT score or general tech. And my general tech score was uh, 129. And I think it's been the highest score on any base I've ever been. So it didn't help me because as soon as I reported to duty, they went to the first sergeant and the guy reading the paperwork looked at my paper, looked over to the first sergeant who's kind of in charge of the company on the enlisted side and said, hey, top, this guy's GT score is higher than yours. So then as soon as I arrived, that got ahead of me. And of course, I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to do any of it. And I go to ask for help and they say, you've got the GT, you figure it out. And how did that affect you in terms of how you felt about that? And like, did it kind of put you in that, in that same position as, as a bit of an outsider? It did. And in an ironic way, 
I'm thankful for the experience. The same guy who said, you have the GT, you figure it out, and hated my guts, is the guy who um, three years later put me up for sergeant. And the reason he did was he said he had never seen anybody who hated his job as much as I did who worked as hard as I did. So it is a weird, you know, principle. It also taught me, you know, things later, you know, like the running joke of, oh, you know, this training's hard or this is terrible. It's like, look, I could stand in a bucket of shit for 30 days if I have to. It's only time. I'll get through it. So that really is kind of where where he went with it. And then I volunteered to invade Haiti so I could get out of California. And I wound up in Cuba. That's how things work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's another island nation. Instead of um, invading Haiti, I was feeding Cuban migrants because that was in the 90s when they tried to come over here in droves. And about 120,000 of them were picked up by the uh, Coast Guard and put on Cuba, Guantanamo Bay the place where they have the terrorists now. Only back then, it was Cubans. Now, that was probably one of the most life-changing events I've ever had. And that was just quite simply meeting these people who were often more educated than I am, just better people than I am, or, you know, than I was. Or And the only difference between us is they're born there, and I was born in the States. They watched their relatives die and get eaten by sharks trying to get to where I was born. So when we get in the, you know, the whole memes about privilege and blah, 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 it's like, well, no, that's privilege. Mm. Just the fact that, and, and you, I would argue, same thing. You're born exactly. in a pretty damn free country, and you didn't do anything for that. You were just born that way. And mm. it really does lend perspective when you just meet these people. And it really came home because we had migrants who would help us you know, with the cooking and loading up the trucks to deliver out to the camps and stuff. One of the guys helping me had like a a master's degree, was working on a second, spoke flawless English. And I'm like, I could barely get five words of Spanish out. Haven't gotten any kind of college degree, you know, just some college. I'd club stuff out and things, but no degree. And here I am giving him instructions. You know, how is this correct in the world? How did you go about, or how did that experience shape your worldview moving forward? I would say that that probably taught me humility more than anything out there. And that's not to say I'm humble. (laughs) I have an ego just like anyone else, but I can occasionally step back and say, you know what? It ain't so bad, dude. Uh, (laughs) There's people who have it so much freaking worse. It's, it's scary. So that, that taught me perspective. It also taught me, believe it or not, about gun control because that was the first thing that was taken away when Castro took over. He had lists. And that's a, you know, everybody's like, what? Oh my God, it's scary or whatever. But it really makes you think life isn't great in Cuba. I don't care what, um, oh God, the, um, Michael Moore, yeah, Michael Moore, he might make a documentary saying it's great, but if it's so great, which way are they swimming? Sort of like, uh, the Berlin wall, you know, if, if, uh, East Germany was so great, then why was, you know, which way were the people traveling? Which way were they trying to get over the wall? I'm a simple guy. Mm, that's true it is a, a great lesson in in perspective and lesson around privilege as well and as you say like being born in New Zealand and being born a white male as well is another aspect of privilege as well and I think that if you just stay where you are and you don't go out and see the world, you can get very wrapped up in, in the problems that you, you have where oh. you are. And, and that's not to kind of diminish people's problems at all, because everyone has problems. But I think the, the traveling that I've done, especially the traveling that I've done to, to third world countries, has hmm. just really 
opened my eyes and given me more of an understanding about how privileged I am. And like as as Spider-Man says with, well, kind of <laughs> a play on words, with great privilege com- comes great responsibility as well. And I think that do- going traveling has actually made me understand more that, hey, I can do more. I need to give a lot more back than, than what I had been giving as well. Sure. I think it's helpful too. And I haven't traveled as much as I like, but you probably go around the world and go, hmm, so you guys do that activity that way. That's kind of smart. I never thought of it. We don't do it that way back home. You know, mm. it, it's, uh, you know, we have this in the U.S., we're probably the worst for it that, you know, we feel like we're the natural leaders and that you know, our way is the way and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and so we just sort of prescribe our values on a, other countries. And I do think we're guilty of that, sorry, you know, as a, as a whole. But there are, there are little things like uh, in Europe, having the freezer on the bottom and the fridge on the top and the freezer in the drawer, it actually makes a whole lot more sense. We traditionally had a freezer on the top and the refrigerator. Well, now it's taken over and the European designs come over. But that's just one example. And I think that if you are open to really exploring why people are doing things the way they are in different areas, then you can actually get a lot smarter and come up with new processes and things like that that'll help enlighten you definitely yeah and i think it like it it creates a a lot of a lot of opportunities and also it does make you ask more questions of yourself and and why you're doing things the way that you're doing and i mean a good example i was in japan a couple of years ago and i mean the japanese do things quite differently in a lot of ways and like they're an amazing society as well and i i need to go back to japan because i absolutely loved it (laughs) but it's quite different kind of the, the kiwi way of life and the the american way of life as well and it's not to say that it's it's wrong or it's right but it's just a different way of doing things that has obviously been reasonably successful as well yeah i mean well they're noted for that especially um processes and things like they're masters of that and how do you cooperate and get along with so many people in such a small area you know that that's something that especially as an american we can barely understand I mean, our proxemics are, you know, very, very near and dear to us. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, one thing is just everyone is super friendly that I found that everyone would come up and talk to us and ask us where we were from and what we were doing there. And when they heard that we were from New Zealand, they said, ah, the All Blacks. (laughs) I was like, yes, yes, yes. The All Blacks. <laughs> That's a religion for you guys. <laughs> it is. It is. And uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. New Zealand, we're either known for our, our dairy products, the Lord of the Rings, lamb. or the All Blacks. Yeah, makes sense. Or lamb, too. Lamb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're definitely yeah. known for. Eric, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot a little bit, mate. I want to talk to you about running, actually. Okay. And I know that you're a bit of a runner. I want to talk to you about how you got into running as an adult, actually, because I'm, I'm interested in that story. Ah, okay. It's a weird story. I don't know if you are familiar with the band Deep Purple. Yes, I I am familiar. Well, you can blame it on the keyboard player dying. John Lord died and that made me a runner. When I was in the army, running was punitive. I did not like it at all. Basic training was really tough time. I started out in basic training, ran one mile in 12 minutes and change. Now, when I finished though, I guess I really wanted to get out, but I ran two miles in 11 minutes, 50 seconds on two sprained ankles. So I I improved a good bit in basic training. Now, as soon as I got out, I got back into smoking and then ran two miles in like the 13s. Now, as soon as I got out of the army in 98, 
I made the proclamation that I was never running again because I really didn't like it. Now, fast forward to quit smoking in 2005, got myself up to 283 pounds in 2012. And I decided, hey, you know what? I really need to get some weight off. So I started by watching my diet. And I said, oh, there's that treadmill that all the clothes are hanging on. Let me take the clothes off of the treadmill and actually turn it on and just start walking. And the reason for that was I wanted to get 10,000 steps a day. I got a Fitbit. I was going to use that with the um, my fitness pal and tracking my food, get 10,000 steps a day. And I noticed it's supercharged. I mean, I dropped about 40 pounds in three months I mean, very, very quickly. And then, unfortunately, that treadmill, which I barely used and it was a clothes hanger, I wound up burning the motor up. I'm like, well, this really sucks. So I went out to get an elliptical machine with the wife. I was going to get a treadmill, but then we decided an elliptical because maybe she'd use it. But I had to wait for it to get delivered a couple of weeks later. I, I learned from the experience of the treadmill is do not assemble it yourself and carry it up your own stairs in the house because you'll be wrecked for weeks and not even want to use it because it tore you up trying to get it there. Yeah, that's a massive workout in itself. <laughs> yes. So since the elliptical was not yet ready to be delivered, I took the show outside and just started walking to get my steps. Now, fast forward, it was the summer of 2012, June, July, somewhere in there, and John Lord of Deep Purple died. Now, the only Deep Purple I'd really listened to was Smoke on the Water, which is a song I can't stand. It gets on my nerves. But then they had another song called Hush. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty cool groove. And I was like, well, let me listen to early Deep Purple. What's that about? I don't know why, but it was like the guy died. I'm going to listen to music at work. Why don't I just listen to some of the old Deep Purple? And I was listening to it. I'm like, God, this is amazing. They have like these songs like Child in Time. They're a 22-minute long jam, just going ballistic with amazing vocals and guitar solos and the, you know keyboard work, everything is an organ, especially. And I'm like, whoa, this is so amazing. So I'm out walking, and instead of listening to an audio book at the time or whatever, I'm listening to that. I'm so hyped up that I ran a couple blocks because I couldn't just walk. I was just pumped. I'm like, oh, okay. That was kind of cool. Now it felt fresh, and I'd walk a bit more and then run a bit more and walk a bit more and then run a bit more. And then I started doing that in the long walks. It's like, well, you know what? Eh, I am sure I could run a mile if I want to. So I ran a mile, you know, mixed in with them walking. Then I was like, okay, well, the PT test in the Army is two miles. So I should go and run about two miles, ran two miles. Then I'm like, well, the next increment, you know, well, 5K, 5K is a pretty good uh, distance, and that's uh, about 3.11 miles. See, I'll convert for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey, it's a K now. So yeah, I'm like, let me do a 5K, and I started running 5Ks, and I just keep tacking on just a little distance, little distance, little distance. And running it pretty much as hard as I could, which is a stupid way to do it, by the way. Don't do it that way. The walk-run thing I did was fantastic. Good. But running the 5Ks progressively faster, if you can, bad. You have to mm. adjust up and down. Yeah. But either way, I went out to visit my nephew. And he was a runner in college and high school. And his weight was up a bit. And it was really cool because I could outrun him. So I loved that. And then he kind of... When we were running together, he looked over at me and he said, you know, you're actually pretty fast for an old dude. <laughs> I was 42. He goes, you, you should um, go into some local races because, you know, since you're old and the times aren't as bad, you might be able to do well in your age group. I was like, mm, really? Uh, okay. So that's, you know, kind of how it started. And then I went on and did a 5K. My second 5K was third overall. Then 
depending on who showed up, you know, because there's talent in the area. And as long as some of them stay away, I would, you know, be in the top three of the age group usually. Yeah, very, very cool. With my physiotherapy hat on, I definitely wouldn't recommend the 5Ks as just as quickly as possible. Not in the beginnings anyway. You need to need to lay a bit of groundwork with that. And I really like that, Eric. I mean, you're, you're talking about elements of progressive physical training with that, yeah. but also that's kind of the way I think about training your comfort zone as well, is that actually it's a, it's a progressive process that if at 283 pounds someone had said to you, you're going to be running 5K races, you probably just would have laughed in their face, I would imagine. Let alone let alone four marathons and a 50k. Yes, yeah, that that too. But <laughs> it's just kind of that that stepwise process is that you're you do something, you push the boundaries a little bit, and then actually after you've done it for a little while, you think, oh, there's this epic deep purple song on at the moment. I'm going to push the boundaries just a little bit uh, a little bit further, and and sometimes it it's nice to just have that that kind of external mm-hmm. impetus with it as well. But the one thing that I'm interested in is how many times in that process. Did you want to stop doing it? Was there at all any time at all? Not really, because the cool part of it is I sort of backed into it. You know, I didn't say, I'm going to go out and go running. I just almost happened to run. So because the progression was there, I sort of tricked myself into it. Do you run? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Then the dirty secret of running is a runner's high is bullshit, and most runs suck if you're doing it right. But afterward, you feel a deep sense of satisfaction that you did it. So what happens is, and it's a perfect sport for a junkie, because you're going to run one run and everything clicks. It's just, it feels good. Your rhythm is good. Everything, it just feels almost effortless and you're cruising, you're doing great. And the next run, the next day sucks. And you're just, it's a slog. You're just like, man, slog, slog. And what are you doing? You're chasing that good run. And that good run happens one every five, six runs, somewhere in there. Most of the other runs, you're actually kind of having to force your way through them a little bit. Mm. And I find with running as well that different parts of the run as well feel horrible and some feel great. And I, I just remember... I went out for a run once and the first couple of Ks was just absolutely horrible. And then Mm -hmm. I felt amazing for about 5K. (laughs) And then the last 3K was just horrible again. I was like, well, it's just just a roller coaster. But that's why you do out and backs though, because (laughs) you you force yourself to um, have to suck it up. I mean, I'm not kidding. I would deliberately go, boom, I'm running out four miles away from my house Mm. or five miles, whatever it is. So then if I want to get home sometime that day, I better be running most of the way. And I could stop a mile back and then do a nice mile cool down, which actually is a good idea anyway. Mm. You know, walking the last mile. Yeah. yeah. Eric, I want to, again, I'm going to pivot a little bit. And I want to talk to you actually about your podcast, Unstructured. Sure. And where did the idea for that come about? How did you get into podcasting? It was kind of a matter of why did I, uh, what made me finally get off my butt and do it. I started listening to podcasting. I'm a, I'm a podcasting listening expert because I've listened to them since the iPod itself. I, I listened uh, early on to like MacBreak Weekly out of Leo Laporte, things like that. Discovered Corolla later, things like that. So about 2006 or so is when I started listening to podcasts. And I, I kind of wanted to do a podcast, I say, within the first couple of years. But I didn't know what I was going to do it about. So I thought, well, maybe I'll do another Apple podcast of some sort because I really love the Apple products and 
I realized that there are a lot of people doing that already and who would listen to me. So I just kind of you know, put it back you know, on the back burner. Then in 2012, well, about 13, I was like, maybe I'll do a running podcast. Somebody's eaten up with running. Every training thing, Lydiard, your, mm-hmm. your guy. Okay. He, he was a very inspirational to my running. And I realized, though, over time, because I was planning to do it, I created a, a, a blog, and I was writing on the blog. It's doing all right. I'm getting products sent to me to do reviews, things like that. And I was going to do the podcast. So I started buying equipment, but I just never really actually did anything. All of my actions were, oh, let me buy a microphone. Oh, let me buy a mixing board. And it's like, you got to use those tools to actually get a podcast. Eventually, I'll get to it, I guess. But I never really did it. And I think the reason is that it might have been too niche. You know, just talking about running, there are only so many running stories and there's only so many training techniques. It, it really, after a while, would get pretty repetitive. And I, I don't know that I'd enjoy it. Plus, um, in the back of my mind, there was that um, saying that essentially uh, when your hobby and work become one, life sucks. Because it's no longer fun when you have to do it. So fast forward a little bit. I got into Joe Rogan and like listening to, you know, some of those from time to time. And I was listening to an interview with him and Sam Harris. And Sam Harris was bitching about a, a previous guest that had been on, um, Hunter Motts. And I guess I'm perverse, but I'm like, well, let me listen to that since some, you know, since somebody is bitching about him so much. And I listened to it and I was like, yeah, it's all right. It's, it's not that bad. And I went to look up his podcast, which actually is the Brian Callen show. And then it turned into something called Mixed Mental Arts. And when I found that, though, I was like, wow, this podcast is amazing. They interview all these world-renowned authors like Jonathan Haidt. Have you heard of uh, Jordan Peterson? Yes. They they interviewed him before he got, you know, to Rogan. They turned him on to Rogan. And I was like, wow, this is so amazing. You know, they interviewed all these authors. I actually read these books. So I got into the community and they have a a Facebook group there. That group has some of the most intelligent people I've ever come across. Much smarter than I am. The sad thing is that they kind of know it. (laughs) And they have that uh, personality, if you will, which is um, (laughs) a, a ton of confidence, very little humility, and they're always right. So I really... Didn't feel comfortable as much there. And I decided that, you know what, I, I kind of want to have the same principle, you know, mixing philosophy and just talking about different subjects or whatever, but on my level, which is uh, kind of an idea pub. So my idea then was I'm going to have my own spinoff podcast, but my approach is that it's somebody I'm having a drink with, you know, as if I'm meeting them in a pub and having a cool conversation. Just one of two basic requirements either they, do something cool or they are somebody cool mm. and uh, that that's so, the premise yeah that's a good way to pick guests actually i won't ask which one i was uh, <laughs> <laughs> awesome, you check both boxes <laughs> oh thank you thank you and i really like your approach with it as well actually like it's it's supernatural and not supernatural as in like ghosts but extremely <laughs> natural. Um, but and also some of the guests that you have on, it's just a just such a wide array of topics that um, 
really interesting to to listen to and, and quite uh, quite diverse and that's one thing that I like about kind of the the concept of my podcast as well is that everyone has a comfort zone and I can mm-hmm. talk to different people about different stuff and hear different stories rather than just talking about running in the the latest shoe and in what your training is like at the moment um, I think would would bore me after about 20 episodes Eric, I've got some questions that I, I like to ask everyone towards the end of the conversation. The first sure. one is, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? The last uncomfortable thing I did is I'm actually doing right now, and that's putting myself out there. And we're still advertising the fact that I'm writing a book. So how am I getting through it? Well, words <laughs> at a time. Yeah. So I, I have to get the stupid book done because kind of putting myself in a corner, enough people know about this. And what is your stupid book about? <laughs> it's about interview podcasting. Imagine that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Tyson Franklin, our mutual friend, said that it's a 90-day book. That you, you have it done in 90 days. Is that right? <laughs> oh, is that what he said? <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe he's just putting pressure on you, mate. <laughs> he has um, lately. So how's the book going? Hey, <laughs> he's, he's quietly uh, started nudging me. Yeah, he can be quite persistent, can't he? Um, he's an awesome guy, though. He is, awesome he is. Eric, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do, and why is that uncomfortable for you? I'm actually going to start probably tightening the show down a little bit. I, I think that its structure is too wide, mm-hmm. if you will. And what's really uncomfortable is I have to start saying no to people. And that really makes me feel uncomfortable because I think everybody's amazing and I don't like turning people away. I felt isolated as a child. I, I'm so thankful. Like right now I'm able to talk to you that you want to hear what I want to say and to tell people no or to turn them away is going to really be excruciating to me. Mm -hmm. Are you going to do a little bit of a rebrand then from unstructured to like semi-structured? I don't know that I am. I'm still going to have a pretty wide range, but I do want to have more of a focus on um, influence, persuasion, communication. And and that's a, still a pretty wide mm. net and, and maybe some inspiration, but I'm going to have to tailor it down and I'll probably have fewer shows a week because I'm starting to get some pretty major guests. I don't know if you saw, I had uh, Jim Fitzgerald on. He was a a major, major FBI profiler who helped bring down um, Unabomber. And, you know, that that was a good 90-minute episode. I spent 15-plus hours, maybe 20 hours researching him. So when I get into some of the bigger guests or names and they have a large body of work behind them, I kind of need to dig in and really research. I'm kind of known for my research already, but I want to be able to do that. And in order to do that, I have to get selective. Mm, understandably. Yeah, good luck with that discomfort. I think I'll be interested <laughs> to hear how you how you get on with the with the nose. I mean, Tim Ferriss is someone that's great in terms of pulling together a whole lot of ideas about how to say no to people as well. I, I really enjoy his stuff on that. Eric, when you're faced with an uncomfortable situation, do you have any strategies that you utilize to, to help you get through it? I stall in any way that I can. I stall. Even if it's something exciting, often I will stall. And that's just to make sure that I'm in control of myself and the way I'm reacting. 
mm. and then I really think it through. So I, I know that sounds weird, but it's like if somebody's saying, uh, if a big guest says, yes, they'll do an interview, I don't immediately answer. I'm going to wait a little bit. And, and maybe it's, it's, but I don't want to be gushing. I don't want to be over, I want to be professional. Yeah. So I will kind of step back. And if I'm in a rage, I am able to write an email and make sure that the two is blank. Mm. And then after I write it all out, I'll deliberately wait two hours or whatever. Go to lunch. I'll try to do something so then I come back in a frame of mind that is different. So now I'm reading my material. It looks like somebody else wrote it. And actually somebody else did. It was me a couple hours ago. Then I read through and I go, is that productive? Let's look at that sentence. No. How about if it's just this? And then just piece by piece, just really go through it and say, is that productive? Does that help me get any further? Does that help me establish a communication or message? So that way I'm able to kind of get my um, venom out earlier and then try to come back and get my um, better, get my better angels of nature. Oh, I like, I like that, uh, that turn of phrase there. Um, Eric, couple more quick questions for you, mate. But first, I just want to say thank you so much for sitting down and spending some time with me yesterday slash tomorrow slash today, wherever, <laughs> whatever time it is whenever. at the moment. Yeah, whenever. But I also want to thank you for bringing a whole lot of really interesting conversations out into the world at a, as you say, kind of more of a, like an everyman level, is that these are, these are conversations that everyone can can listen to you don't have to have a, a gt score of 130 or above or or <laughs> be involved in any kind of super exclusive facebook groups as well and yeah i think yeah thank you for thank you for the education that you provide on that well, thank you wow if people are interested in checking you out mate if they want to if they want to listen to some of these conversations where's the best place for them to do that how can they how can they follow along unstructured on any podcast player out there, except for Pandora, they just started. I submitted, hopefully it gets in there. But um, I think it is pretty much on any player you can find, unstructured. It's a show name, it'll come right up. If you want to follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's unstructured P as in podcast. Excellent. And when can we expect this book? <laughs> Soon. Soon? Done, we'll, we'll get it for Christmas? No. Not quite. <laughs> no, definitely okay, not. Okay. okay. I'll get Tyson back on to you. Eric, final question for you. Do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Take action on something that you've neglected or is incomplete in your life. Okay. Yeah, good. Good. I can think of a couple of things that I should do already. Just five seconds after you've said that. So, Eric Gunley, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. Oh, thank you, man. There you have it team, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eric. I was really interested and, and really enjoyed finding out a little bit more about Eric and, and some of the ways that he approaches uncomfortable situations and really interested in his challenge as well. Um, I recorded the episode this morning and I'm recording the, the intro and outro this evening and actually one of the things that I needed to take action on was was having a, a conversation that I've been meaning to have for a little while and did it, went really well, feel a whole lot better afterwards. So as Eric was saying, go out, take on that challenge uh, and let us know how you go with it. 
For those of you in Wellington on the 26th of January next year who want to get out of your comfort zone and learn the strategies that you need to take on challenges without overwhelming yourself, head over to surmountcourse.com for my next workshop. That's surmountcourse.com. The link will be in the notes for the show. Thank you so much, Jyland, for your editing wizardry. Thank you, Jeremy, my brother, for your musical wizardry in, in regards to the theme music for the show. And thank you guys, as always, for taking the time to get uncomfortable with me this week. 